This is a Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library. Hello, everyone. Thank you for being here today. My name is Kevin Navratel, and I'm the coordinator for Global and Diversity Education here at Moraine Valley. And I'd like to thank Troy Swanson for hosting this event in the library and all the multimedia staff today. Uh, Today we have a great speaker, uh, Dr. Khalil Marar from Governor's State. Uh, Dr. Marar has taught political science, history, international relations. He uh, specializes in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and Islamic political thought. His research interests include international relations, ancient and modern philosophy, American culture, foreign policy, global organizations and institutions, and terrorism. He has served in the editorial positions at the Arab Studies Quarterly of the Association of the Amer- Arab American University Graduates. Dr. Marar is author of The Arab Lobby and the U.S. Foreign Policy, The Two-State Solution in Middle East Conflicts, The Basics, A Book in Progress. I'd like to have all of you join me in th- uh, welcoming Dr. Marar. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right, uh, thank you very much for the very warm uh, introduction by Dr. Navratil and uh, to the good folks at Moraine Valley and to you folks as well for turning up. Um, I know that you have a lot of choices um, over what to do with your time. And I really appreciate the fact that this kind of talk could literally fill um, a room like this one and that you folks are actually interested. This generation, like no other, is actually interested in global events um, in this region like no other generation that I've ever seen. And I'd like to welcome you all and give you props um, and a shout-out uh, for being here today. Uh, the, the, my talk today is After Egypt, The Fate of Political Islam in the Middle East. And this is based on a forthcoming book that I have uh, called Conflicts in the Middle East, The Basics by Rutledge. Um, and essentially what we have in this region um, is no longer a pretty picture, not that it ever was. Um, the truth is what we have in the region is something that really started out as the Arab Spring. And this is something that's dubbed the Arab Spring because of a variety of reasons, right? Now, when, when you all think of spring, what do you usually think of? Like, what, what comes to mind as soon as you hear the term spring? Water. Good. Water. Good stuff. Nurturing, right? Um, life, right? Water being the root of our life. Um, progress. Uh, you know, literally looking ahead and seeing good times ahead. And... And, and, and literally, like, you know, moving away from the death of winter, right, because everything dies in winter, and, and, and the life of what's to come. Um, the Arab Spring was dubbed that because there was the belief that everyone in the Middle East, in the region, will be exposed to democracy, will be exposed to liberalization, will be exposed to all the things that you and I take for granted, right? Um, it seemed as if the Middle East was going to become this new hotbed of liberal values and virtues that, that people freedom of speech, that they'll be able to govern themselves, you know, and, and, and that they will have the right to vote. This is something that essentially is the basis for democratic governance, and it's something that you and I take for granted, so much so that just a show of hands, people voted in the last election, and we're 18 in the last election. We're 18 had, okay, excellent. So when you look at the room, right, about, and this is a college crowd, right, about 60% of you raised your hands, that still leaves 40% that didn't vote, maybe because you weren't 18 yet, I'm not really sure why you didn't vote. Um, how many people didn't vote even though they were 18? Raise your hands. Be honest with me. Okay. You all know who you are. Excellent. Um, they want the right that we all take for granted, right? They want the ability to be able to choose to elect the people they 
And they want to be able to function in a society that, that prizes what they have to say, that prizes what they have to add, and that basically allows them to be treated with dignity, right? Dignity is an important concept. It's something that we take for granted almost, right? And, and when you are treated in an indignified way, undignified way, you feel very much undignified and you feel very outraged and angry. And it was anger and outrage that brought those people, people your age, by the way, students, college students especially, out to the streets in Tunisia, in Morocco, in Egypt, in Libya, in Syria, to protest the kind of governments that they have basically known for, for, for decades, right? Um, in many cases, the parents told them, you know, don't partake in politics, right? Politics is this dangerous thing. You don't want to touch politics. You want nothing to do with it. Just go out, get a degree, stay quiet, do what you're supposed to do, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, and things will be okay, right? And think about that. Things will be okay. Get a college education, and things will be okay. Well, they got a college education, and things were not okay. I mean, the truth is, when you look at this region, you know, the college unemployment rate, college graduated unemployment rate, is higher than it is almost anywhere in the world, right? When you look at unemployment rates of 40% in countries like Egypt, or possibly even 60% is the unofficial unemployment rate, you get to have a pretty clear idea of what's going on in the region, right? So you can go out, you get a college education, you work your butt off, right? You study, you go, you go to these exams, you take these classes, you get that college degree. Yay, lucky me, I got this college degree. And then you come out and you don't have a job. You don't have any prospects. Your parents don't have any money because they exhausted themselves trying to put you through school and pretty much the stuff hits the fan, right? You begin to wonder, what the hell good is this government that you have to stay quiet for, that you have to basically abide without the ability, without the prospects, right, to have a position in life, to have something that allows you to be gainfully employed, to have something that allows you to raise your family and stuff like that. And people took to the streets as a result of that. What took to the streets, what brought them to the streets was not a political issue, right? They were not first and foremost concerned about the politics, right? They were concerned about, you know, in Egypt we call it the bread ripple or the bread revolution. They were concerned about bread, right? Bread being a basic staple of the Arab diet, Bread being something that you use to scoop up hummus with, for example, you need that. Right? Bread being something that's essential right, for all of the dietary needs of the region. And people turned out to the streets because they couldn't provide for the simple things in life, things like bread, having bread on their table, having food on their table, and having the kind of prospects that we all almost take for granted here. Although I'm speaking to a crowd that grew up in the Great Recession, it's not as bad as it is over there. It's really, really bad over there. And it's getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And therefore, people took to the street, right? This word, irhal, literally means move out, go away, right? And it was the word that was chanted throughout the region about or to the dictators that governed the region. People like Muammar Gaddafi, people like Hosni Mubarak, governed the region with an iron fist. They governed without anybody to governed. They governed without ever having a legitimate election. They governed on the basis, not so much of the divine right of kings, but pretty darn close to it. Most of them were not kings. Most of them governed through force. And any time you govern people through force, they're going to rise up and overthrow you, as Tocqueville reminds us. So this is a chant that was literally in existence throughout the region, right? And many people to sort of two diametrically opposed sides in the region, right? There's the side that says that we can get democracy, right? We can get freedom, forget about democracy, we can get freedom through terror, right? And there's a side that says that we can get 
the right to govern ourselves only by acting in a manner that is consistent with our ability to govern ourselves, right? And that is democratic protest, the right to freedom of expression, taking it to the street, telling our government this is precisely what we want. What we want is not to be downtrodden anymore. What we want is no longer to be literally governed by the thumb or the iron fist of these governments that have governed us for decades. What we want is the thing that most people take for granted, right? And in this day and age, you can no longer hide what the rest of the world is experiencing. Right now we have things like Facebook and Twitter and all these things, right? Now we have social media. Now we have global television. Now we have a more pervasive satellite technology that allows people around the world to actually see the way that you all are living. And when the average Egyptian looked at the way that Americans live, the way that people in France live, the way that people in the UK live, they said, I want that too. Why can't I have that? That's the same thing that took place in Syria, by the way. The Syrian people looked at the world around them, looked at the door, right, and said, we want to have that. Now, little did they know, little did they know that having that doesn't necessarily mean having democracy right away. Little did they know, as they do now in Egypt, that having that means a military coup d'etat, right? Little did they know that in Libya, having that means that you basically have a government that is in shambles, that is governed by factions, that having that in Syria literally will result in the use of chemical weapons by the regime, right? Nobody knew that. Nobody could have forecasted that. Everybody thought that democracy would basically come to them as long as they went out to the streets and expressed themselves, said that we want democracy. What they got is far from democracy. And I fear that what they're getting in Syria right now is not democracy at all, right? It's what's, what is going on in Syria? Chaos, civil war, right? What they got in Syria is things like civil war. What they got in Egypt is the return of military government, right? What they got in Libya is basically a factional, if you will, a factionally divided government. What they got throughout the region is not democracy at all. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is why? Why is it that, for example, countries like Egypt do not have democracy, right? Why couldn't they get their act together, why couldn't they pull things together so much so that they can't have democracy? Right? And this is a question that I always pose to my students. I will pose it to this crowd. Why can't the Egyptians have democracy? What's wrong with them? Is, this, is, there, is there something wrong with the Egyptian people? Is that what we think is going on? Then what is it? You shake your head. Why? What's going on with Egypt? Why can't they have democracy? Anyone? Yeah? Divided, right? Their people are divided. How are they divided? They're not agreeing on one universal ideal of what they should have. And what is that universal ideal that they should have? Well, not everyone agrees that they should have democracy. They're afraid of it. Excellent, right? Not, not everybody agrees that they want, that they need democracy. There's a fear that's involved in democracy, right? What are we afraid of in democracy, though? What's the fear? You hit the nail on the head, right? There could be governance by ignorance. People who don't know any better, right? People who do not respect democracy. In Egypt, if you were to talk to the average Egyptian, they will tell you that what they got with the Muslim Brotherhood was exactly that, right? They got, regardless of how you feel about the Muslim Brotherhood, right? They got an ignorant government that really does not know how to govern, right? Now, I've gone on the record, I've gone on on every single forum and basically have expressed my disdain for the coup d'etat. 
But you cannot be dismissive of the fact that the way that the Egyptian government governed, right, the Muslim Brotherhood government governed, is not exactly keeping in line with democratic virtues, right? They tried to rid themselves of personal freedoms that people almost took for granted under Mubarak, right? And here's the thing. The economy didn't get any better, right? Here's the thing throughout the Middle East right, that you need to understand. Even though people took to the street, even though undemocratic governments are either in trouble or have been deposed, the economic situation didn't get any better, right? And this is a link in political science, right? People that study political science have a very difficult issue with. What is the link between democracy on the one hand and economics on the other hand, right? Does democracy produce more economic prosperity? Does economic prosperity produce more democracy? This is something that we're conflicted about. The truth is, this region has demonstrated that democracy, democratization, and liberalization do not necessarily go hand in hand. Never mind democratization and economic prosperity. That's the thing that you have to keep in mind about this region, right? Just, be, just because some countries receive democracy, right, like Egypt, they got the right to vote, did not make the economic situation improve, right? See. In the United States, right, we voted for, in 2008, we voted for President Obama, right, and a new Congress, and so on. And we were promised, right, hope and change. If you talk to the average American person right now, right, you don't have to talk to Sarah Palin, who's like talking about that hopey dopey stuff, right? No, just talk to the average American person. They will tell you that they are not better off now than they were, say, five years ago, right? Just because you vote for somebody different, right, as our experience shows in the United States of America, does not necessarily mean that economic conditions improve overnight, right? Now, now, you know, if you look at the stock market and things like that, it's obviously gotten better. The unemployment rate's gone down, stuff like that, but not fast enough for the average American on Main Street to feel that betterment, right? That is perhaps analogous with what's taking place in the Middle East. It's that relationship between governance on the one hand, government politics on the one hand, right, and economic well-being on the other hand. Just because you get your way politically, right, so this just because you get your way politically does not necessarily mean that economically you're going to be better off, right? And therefore, in Egypt, we have a lot of discontent, so much so that people took to the streets and overthrew the democratically elected government of President Morsi. So much so, right, that people in Libya are now wondering what the good old days might have been like. So much so that a lot of people in Iraq, right? Iraq is one of the most violent countries in the Middle East right now. It's not Syria, by the way. It's Iraq, right? Well, maybe Syria and Iraq are competing for first place. It's a bad place to compete for, right? But Iraq is a country in turmoil politically, right? Even though they have democratic governance, economically it's much, much better, right? But there's not that necessary link between democracy and economics. If you take nothing else away from everything that I've said, it's that when we're talking about politics and economics, they're very much related, right? But they're separate just because you improve your life economically does not mean politically you're going to be satisfied. And likewise, just because you improve your life politically does not necessarily mean you're going to be satisfied economically. This region is an economic turmoil, right? There's hope, and I'll close this talk today by talking about the things that give me hope. But there's also a lot of dissensus, a lot of turmoil, a lot of issues, and a lot of things that we have to keep in mind in this region as we're talking about this region, right? It's not a region that is all rosy. It's actually quite the contrary. It's very difficult, very dangerous. And it's also that difficulty and danger that people face in the region is also what produces attacks on the
the American mainland on 9-11. It's also what produces the kind of attacks that we see on a daily basis on American interests throughout the region, right? That is not to say that these people are justified in doing that, but it is to say that there's so much discontent, so much hatred, right? So much hatred towards not just their governments, right? But so much hatred towards world's governments that basically keep those governments in power that they will go to great lengths to attack the people that keep them oppressed, be they the governments there, be they the interests of those governments there, or be they the interests of the people that enable, that support, that help out the governments that exist over there. Right? Now, to give you one example, the United States of America right, was supporting the Egyptian regime to the tune of almost $2 billion a year. Right? $1.5, $1.6 billion a year was flowing, your tax dollars. Right? When you get your paycheck and you see your federal tax column, right, some of that goes to funding the Egyptian government. Right? When the average Egyptian sees that this government, the very government that's oppressing me, is being funded militarily by the United States of America, they're going to put two and two together. They're not going to like us any more than they like their government. Right? It's a bad idea to throw our lot in with undemocratic authoritarian regimes. But here's the irony. When the Muslim Brotherhood took over, right, democratically speaking, we continued the aid to Egypt. Right? We continued the aid to Egypt's military until the Egyptian military took over again, and we're still continuing the aid even though, according to U.S. law, we cannot fund governments that have gone through a coup d'etat. Right? Coup d'etat being literally an overthrow of government the legitimate or otherwise government of the particular country involved, right? So we're still giving them money, come hell or high water, right? Now that might be a good thing for the Egyptian military. It doesn't really affect the ordinary Egyptian one iota, right? If you're sitting in Egypt and you're looking at your government and you're unhappy with your government, you put the United States and your government in the same camp, right? You see them as one and the same, if you will, and the fact that you're not feeling any better is at the footsteps on the doorsteps of that government and its allies. Right? When people hate on their governments, they're effectively hating on the United States as well because we support those governments. The question is what should be done in terms of our foreign policy disposition and those are the signs of hope that I'll be looking at towards the end. Any questions, issues or concerns so far? concerning Egypt or anything. Okay, and I promise we're going to have a Q&A portion later on. When we look at the Arab Spring, when we look at Egypt, when we look at who exactly is involved in the Egyptian revolts, right? there's always the face, if you will, of the youth that comes to mind. This is one of the face. Well, right, this guy, let me show you this. Do you folks have internet here? Do you have good Wi-Fi internet? It's always good to ask the students. Does the Wi-Fi internet work well or no? Who thinks the Wi-Fi internet here works well? Who doesn't? All right. Okay, we'll see here. We'll put it to the test right here. So I'll just copy this and just paste it into Explorer, and hopefully it'll be working properly. This is what I want to share with you, and the reason I want to share this with you is because it's so instructive about like who those people are 
that showed their discontent, that showed their disapproval of their government in Egypt, and who basically loses in the end, ironically, is those very people. engineers who can see the future meets a team at Goldman Sachs who can see potential. of some of our leaders that the violence is ongoing and you guys aren't going about this the right way and etc etc well again I'm speaking on my behalf you know my behalf of myself not, not on, on behalf of the Egyptian people I just think that you know recovering from 60 years of you know military rule and 30 years of pure dictatorship is not going to happen in months and uh, I always like this concept of the helicopter view where, you know, when I get frustrated, I get frustrated just like everyone else with, and disappointed with the pace of change. But then I like to rest and look back and, and see the big picture. There has been, you know, lots of achievement in the past 12 months. Mm -hmm. We never have thought it would happen in years. Uh, um, it's, it's good to be dreamy and to seek, the, you know, to keep seeking the right, you know, the right way to go. Uh, yet it's also important while you're doing that is to be kind of realistic and celebrate successes. Uh, you know, we have a success uh, such as that for the first time in history, 27 million took to the street uh, in 60 years, in Egypt history in 60 years, took to the street almost 50% of the voters, more than 50% of the voters uh, to vote for a parliament member. Uh, we are having presidential elections coming in very soon. So the Egyptian people are finally having a say on democracy. Um, I think a lot of the frustration in the West happens because probably that's not what they have envisioned as the, you know, the people choice. And to me, I, w I took to the street not to tell Egyptians who they should choose or replacing a dictator with another one, but who is much better. I went to the street because Egyptians were denied the right to choose. And it's about time that they get that right to choose. And based on the opinion of the majority, we have to all respect. I was disappointed that George W. Bush was re-elected in the U.S. presidential election for a second term after what happened in Iraq as an Arab who was, who did not really ha was happy or appreciate what he did. Yet, for the American people, that's the choice where everyone have followed and everyone have respected because this is democracy. And pretty much the same thing should happen everywhere in the world. And I think, again, let's go back to any country recovering from a dictatorship to democracy, it's a process, it will take time, there will be price, uh, we will all sometimes be disappointed. For me, I want to remain optimistic, passionate, and a believer that those who w woke up, the critical mass that now cares a lot about this country, are no longer scared, are going to take this country in the right direction, despite all the hard time we might be facing. Alright, so this is where El Ronin, right, this guy from Egypt who basically is talking about the Egyptian revolt and what it means, right, to have democracy, right? He said he did not care for somebody like a George W. Bush in the United States, but that who voted for George W. Bush? You all did. Well, maybe not you all, but the American people did, right? We did. We did, right? And therefore, love him or hate him, we should respect the electoral outcome, right? In Egypt, they voted for Mohamed Morsi, right? To many, he was George W. Bush, right? In the, in the sense, why am I bad-mouthing Bush that way? I, I shouldn't do that. He was well, that's because George W. Bush had a 29% approval rating by the time he left office. That's why I'm saying that, right? Obama has 45, so he's not much better. But anyway, um, in terms of, of, of Mohamed Morsi, right, he was voted for by the Egyptian people. They put him in office, right? 
and the military stood up and said, Mercy, you're coming down, right? And ironically, they said, Mubarak, the guy that governed before Mercy, you're getting out of jail. Now, what we have is a situation where the democratically elected guy, Morsi, is in jail, right? And the guy that governed Egypt for decades undemocratically is out of jail, right? Riddle me that. Imagine that. Now, in their defense, the Egyptian people turned out to the streets and did not want Mohammed Morsi anymore. That's probably why the military took over. In fact, I bet you that's exactly why the military took over. But effectively, what the Egyptians got is the deposing of the democratically elected leader, right, Mohammed Morsi. And I have my own feelings on the Muslim Brotherhood, deep down, right? The democratically elected leader was taken down, put in prison, right? His party imprisoned. And the person that governed Egypt for decades, the undemocratically elected leader, he wasn't elected by anybody except for himself, right? Basically gets to get out of jail. That is a crisis of epic proportion in Egypt. It's not something that's going to bode well for the Egyptian people. It's a reversal of democracy, right? In fact, it's such a reversal of democracy that according to most indices of democratization that you look at today, Egypt has basically gone back, not forward, right? The fact that they took down the democratically elected governor, right, in this case, Mohammed Morsi, means that the Egyptians took a step backwards. That is not to say that I support the Muslim Brotherhood, right? It is to say, however, that that party got elected, right? And despite that election, the military nullified the will of the Egyptian people by honoring the will of the Egyptian people, ironically, because you had millions on the streets that demanded that Morsi step down, right? So this is the funny thing about this region. People, and it's not so funny, it's kind of sad actually, but sometimes what's sad is funny too, you know what I mean? People that voted for Mohammed Morsi, right? People that elected him, elected a person that they thought was going to govern their country out of the mess that it was in. When he failed to do that, those same people, many of them, took to the streets and said, enough, right? The funny thing about democracy is that just because people vote for somebody doesn't mean that they're going to support him later. But just because they withdraw their support does it give anyone the right to nullify the people's original wishes? We struggle with that in this country, right? You know, you have to remember, people like George W. Bush and Barack Obama are democratically elected. Just because people do not care in majority numbers for Barack Obama or George W. Bush does not give them the right to engage in an overturning of that government. Does not give the military the right to engage in overturning that government, right? Democracy is kind of tough that way. We're stuck with the choices that we make, right? And the bigger issue here is that even though democratically the Egyptian people voted for Mohammed Morsi, right, he was taken down undemocratically by the military. And now you have a situation in which the military governs the country, right, just as they did under Mubarak without the figure of Mubarak being at the head of that government. That's problematic. That's an issue and that is something that we should take issue with as Americans, especially since our tax dollars are going over to the country to support the very undemocratic government that exists in Cairo. In Syria, it's a much different situation, right? Syria is in crisis, is in trouble, and is in the kind of trouble that Egypt found itself in in the early days, insofar as you basically have a government that does not have the consent of the people 
except unlike Egypt, what Syria has is a civil war that's taking place that has killed 100,000 people, right? 1,500 of whom died through chemical attacks. Now, how do people, be honest with me, how do people heard about the chemical attacks in Syria? How do people did not hear about the chemical attacks in Syria? Right? Almost unanimously, you all heard about it. Some of you have not, right? Some of you have not. In the situation that is called Syria, there's three things that I want you to keep in mind. Like Egypt, right? There people revolted, and they revolted against economically tough times, against an undemocratic government, right? Unlike Egypt, unlike Egypt, the government did not step down. The government is staying put, right? And the government is staying put because the government believes, Bashar al-Assad believes, that he ought to govern Syria because the Syrian people want him to govern, right? To which the response should be, well, when was the last time you had an election, President Assad? Right? He'll be like, we have many elections. Well, when was the last time you had an election? Nobody's ever voted for this guy legitimately, right? So the question is, how can we gauge what the Syrian people want without a democratic election, right? So needless to say, people rose up against Assad. Now, unlike Egypt, right? Unlike Egypt, Syria is divided between two major groups. Does anybody know what those groups are? Sunni and and Shiite, specifically the Alawites, a Shiite branch, a minority branch in Syria that governs over the country. It really is a tyranny of the minority, right? The Sunnis rose up with some Alawite support, right? And want the guy to step down. What are they tired of? The same thing that the Egyptians were tired of. Bad economic times and an undemocratic government in place that governs over those people with an iron fist, right? But unlike Mubarak, Assad did not step down, right? Unlike Mubarak, Assad used chemical weapons. Unlike Mubarak and unlike Egypt, right, the Syrian regime does not get its support from the United States of America. Instead, it gets its support from Russia and its ally, China, right? So it's kind of dangerous for our interests in many ways in the sense that you basically have a client state of the Russian Federation in the Middle East that is cracking down on its people, that is governing with an iron fist, that is gassing them, right? This, is, this attack, the recent attack that you all heard about, is been dubbed, has been dubbed the worst attack of the 21st century in terms of chemical weapons. The only one of the few attacks of the 21st century in terms of chemical weapons, right? And the Syrian government lingers on. Why does the Syrian government linger on? Because nobody has taken action to stop them, right? The Syrian people took action to stop them, but there isn't the kind of client-state relationship that the Egyptians had with us. And look what we've made with that relationship. We have a military government in Egypt, right? We have a military government in Syria. It's just that with Syria, I always like to gloat about this as an American. I'm very proud to tell you that we absolutely had nothing to do with the mess that the Assad regime has put its people in. Right? We have a lot to do with Egypt, but we have nothing to do with what's going on in Syria. Right? Except to say that now the United States and our allies are actually funding, supporting the rebellion and supporting some of the same elements that we call terrorist organizations here in the USA. Right? There are operatives in Syria, now that the war has been going on for at least two years, that have vowed, have pledged to support Al-Qaeda, right? They are, in fact, Al-Qaeda in the sham, right? Sham, S-H-A-M, not sham. Like, yeah, okay. uh, sham literally means Syria, right? Like the, the, the Syria and stuff like that. 
they're, they're called this, that the, 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 the Syrian branch of Al-Qaeda, right? When, here's the dilemma in Syria. Right? We told you about, I told you about, not we, there's not three people saying up here. I told you about the dilemma in Egypt, right? The dilemma in Egypt is that we're still continuing to support a military government, right? In Syria, the dilemma is this. We are supporting Al-Qaeda. If we engage in airstrikes, how are we supporting Al-Qaeda, you might ask? We're giving weapons to the rebellion, right? And some of those weapons are getting out of the hands of the good guys, right, into the hands of the bad guys, right? In Syria, I'm not really sure who the good guy is anymore, right? The people on the ground that are doing the beheadings and the floggings and stuff like that, they're not acting in accordance with any decency or human rights. The Assad regime naturally is not acting in comporting or by comporting itself with human rights. The question is, who should we be aiding in Syria? And that really is the problem in Syria. I have a hand up there. Go ahead. What's your name? Speak up. My name is Isa. Isa. Where are you from, Isa? Jordan. Jordan. Can you can, can you all hear Isa? Go ahead. I'm from the Middle East, and I'm from the uh, from Amman, Jordan. Assalamu alaikum, Isa. Alaikum I was want to. I just got a question. Yeah. Is does the United States support it, or is Obama supporting it? Does the United States support the rebels, or does Obama support the rebels? You're making the distinction between Obama and the United States, right? Yes. Excellent question. Since we voted for Obama, right, we de facto are supporting what's happening, the rebellion that is happening in Syria. Does that make sense? Yeah. Does Obama support the rebellion? Yeah, he's giving arms to the rebels, some of whom are actually vowed supporters of Al-Qaeda, right? So I don't believe that the distinction between Obama and the United States is one that should be imposed, especially since Obama is elected by the American people. That's my position on that, Isa. Yeah, like Obama, when he was first elected, there was change, there was hope in him. Yeah. But now a couple of years later, there's nothing. And a couple of days ago in Washington, there was yesterday, matter of fact, there was a shooting in Washington. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Maybe, and we live in dangerous, troubled times, right? We in the United States, we throughout the world live in dangerous, troubled times. And the truth is, and Isa, I'm glad you're talking about this, right? When Obama got elected, right, he went to the Middle East and gave the Middle East, gave Middle Easterners what's known today as the Cairo speech. Now, be honest with me. How many people have watched the Cairo speech? Raise your hands. How many people did not watch the Cairo speech? You're going to hear about the Cairo speech a lot. You're going to hear about the Cairo speech a lot. And, and you're going to hear about the Cairo speech a lot, not today so much. I want to actually show you a little bit of what Obama said in the Cairo speech. You're going to hear a lot about the Cairo speech because people will say, your president dropped the ball. President Obama dropped the ball in the Middle East. And the question is, why? How did he drop the ball, right? The other day, this guy was talking. I was on a TV show with this guy who was saying, President Obama dropped the ball. I'm like, how did he drop the ball? He said, in 2009, he came out and he gave the Cairo speech, right? When anybody th hears that kind of stuff, that kind of wording, this is what President Obama said briefly in the Cairo speech. All you have to do is just YouTube Cairo speech Obama, right? It takes place in 2009. The full text of it actually exists as Exhibit A on YouTube. If you go to the YouTube link, here's President Obama in Egypt, in Cairo, of all places. Listen to this guy. So long... More recently, tension has been fed by colonialism, the denied right... right and this, this, in, this is in regards to exactly what 
the audience member Isa, right, just, just mentioned, right? Hope, change. This is the kind of hope and change that Obama is talking about. Good afternoon. I am honored to be in the timeless city of Cairo and to be hosted by two remarkable institutions. For over a thousand years, Ulazal has stood as a beacon of Islamic learning. And for over a century, Cairo University has been a source of Egypt's advancement. And together, you represent the harmony between tradition and progress. I'm grateful for your hospitality and the hospitality of the people of Egypt. And I'm also proud to carry with me the goodwill of the American people and a greeting of peace from Muslim communities in my country. Assalamu alaikum. We meet at a time of great tension between the United States and Muslims around the world. Tension rooted in historical forces that go beyond any current policy debate. The relationship between Islam and the West includes centuries of coexistence and cooperation, but also conflict and religious wars. More recently, tension has been fed by colonialism that denied rights and opportunities to many Muslims. And a Cold War in which Muslim-majority countries were too often treated as proxies without regard to their own aspirations. Moreover, the sweeping change brought by modernity and globalization led many Muslims to view the West as hostile to the traditions of Islam. Violent extremists have exploited these tensions in a small but potent minority of Muslims. The attacks of September 11, 2001, and the continued efforts of these extremists to engage in violence against civilians has led some in my country to view Islam as inevitably hostile not only to America and Western countries, but also to human rights. All this has bred more fear and more mistrust. So long as our relationship is defined by our differences, we will empower those who sow hatred rather than peace, those who promote conflict rather than the cooperation that can help all of our people achieve justice and prosperity. And this cycle of suspicion and discord must end. I've come here to Cairo to seek a new beginning between the United States and Muslims around the world, one based on mutual interest and mutual respect, and one based upon the truth that America and Islam are not exclusive and need not be in competition. Instead, they overlap and share common principles, principles of justice and progress, tolerance and the dignity of all human beings. All right, so if you're listening to this, right? Right, Asa, this is what you're talking about. If you're listening to this, right, this sounds really good. This sounds really good, right? 
were no longer going to be divided. Islam and American virtues overlap. The United States is going to... And if you listen to this enough, right? It's an hour speech. We don't have an hour, right? If you listen to this enough, President Obama comes out and says, literally, that if you want freedom, if you want the right to speak your mind, if you want democracy, if you want prosperity, we, we, the United States of America, are going to support you. We're going to support you, right? There's a lot of people that connect the dots between the Cairo speech of 2009, right, on the one hand, by Obama, and the Arab Spring on the other hand. So, needless to say, people in the region rise up. What does the United States do? In Egypt, right? The Egyptian people are on the streets. Hundreds have been killed, right? What does the United States do? We're like twiddling our thumbs, waiting around like lazy. Right? We're twiddling our thumbs, right? We're doing nothing. We come out and then, in later stages of the revolt, support the de facto outcome of what happened in Egypt. Listen to me very carefully. We only supported democratization in Egypt after democratization became, if you will, the desired option for the Egyptian government. Right? When you do that, that's kind of like guessing... It's like guessing the answer to a test question after the answer comes out. Do you understand what I'm saying? Right? It's not a good way of running foreign policy. And then, to make matters worse, the democratically elected government in Egypt gets overthrown. What does Obama do? He's out. Golf, literally golfing, I swear. He was golfing. He was golfing. Right? That's what he's doing. He's golfing. So is that a man that supports democracy? The better question is, are we in the United States of America supportive of democracy? There are pe many people in the Middle East that would say no. Right? Now, don't get me wrong. It's not just support as in, you know, do we say we support democracy, right? We, everybody can say we support democracy. The question is, the better question is, to what end is our foreign aid going, right? If you look at Egypt, we're talking about $1.5 billion in aid. It's going to the military government that is governing Egypt, not towards democracy, not towards democracy, right? Now, here's, here's the hope that I have. Right, and th this, is, this is where I want to open it up to questions. I believe that there are five things that we need to do here in the United States of America in order to bring about not just a better, better Middle East, but a better world. Right? The first thing that we should do, the first thing that we should do is actually live up to the kind of rhetoric that is being emitted in the speech. Right? You know, our Declaration of Independence says we hold these, we hold these truths to be self-evident. Right? That what? That all men are what? Equal, right? That all men are created equal. And that we're endowed by our creator with unalienable rights. Amongst those rights, according to Jefferson, right, are the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. When you look at what our foreign policy does in Egypt, right, you have the right to die, you have the right to be imprisoned, you have the right to basically be miserable, right? If you're somebody who voted for that government in Egypt and got your vote annulled, the tax dollars that we are sending to the Egyptian military government are not consistent with what we say we are. The silver lining is this. Speeches like this are important, right? But the first thing that we have to do, 
amongst the five things that I'm going to suggest here is that we have to basically conduct our foreign policy in a way that is realistic. Right? Don't, be, don't get me wrong. I think that we should go for our interests, but we should do it with an eye towards our values. Right? We should bring our interests and values together, point number one. Point number two, we should stop supporting undemocratic governments. I mean, it's really that simple. We shouldn't give our support to undemocratic governments. We should withdraw our support from undemocratic governments, right? That is not to say that we shouldn't look out for our realist interests, but we should do so with an eye on democracy, right? So we should tell the Egyptian government, okay, we'll continue the aid, but here's what you need to do to continue receiving it and possibly increasing it. We'll tell the Jordanian government, right? Jordan gets $500 million of, of your tax dollars. You all know that, right? You can get the $500 million as long as you democratize. So the second thing that we have to do is withdraw our support from undemocratic governments. The third thing that we have to do, all of us, right, in the United States of America, is take words of our leaders seriously, right? We have to honor what our leaders say and act in accordance with those things, with those words, right? When he says we're going to support you if you want democracy, we have to value that. The American people have to live up to that, right? The fourth thing we have to do is we have to stop paying so much attention to what I'm here talking about and pay more attention to ourselves. You know, I mean, we're in crisis in this country. We still have a recession in so far as the unemployment rate continues in this country to be high, right? We still have a recession if you're somebody who lives on Main Street. We could only lead the world through strengthening our country and the world will want our leadership when we're strong. It doesn't really care for it when we're weak. Right? We should pay more attention to what's going on here. And the last thing we need to do, that all of us need to do, is to stay connected, stay involved, right? stay active. What gives me hope is that not only the fact that people in Egypt basically pay attention to what's going on around the world, what gives me hope is the fact that people like you, right, in this room, care enough to actually come listen to the kind of talks that are being offered in this hallowed library, right? The kind of talks that really connect you with the rest of the world. I have hope because you are some of the most connected people on earth, right? You'll continue to be that way, but stay that way, right? And with the other points that I mentioned, I think we can turn this into a better world. Questions? Yes. Um, hi, my name is Katie, hey, and Katie. I'm a foreign policy student, but my dad immigrated from Russia. Awesome. Um, David Brooks in the New York Times. Gavrish Paruski? Nyat Gavrish Paruski. Nenyata. David Brooks in a New York Times article said that between the Sunnis and the Shiites and Christians fighting in Syria and with Iran and the Saudi Arabians funding these, they said, uh, David Brooks said that there are pretty much going to be no borders soon. Yeah. And it's just going to be an all-out regional civil war between the three sects of religions. Do you think that this, it will come to that? You know, I think it's definitely looking that way, right? What's happening in Syria is, and what you're talking about, what Brooks is talking about, is essentially true, right? What's happening in Syria is not staying in, in Syria, right? I don't want to make light of the situation. It's really tragic what's happening in Syria. But, y you know, some of the things that are tragic, you have to kind of make fun of a little bit. It's not like Las Vegas. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, you know? It doesn't, by the way. I I've tried this. It really doesn't. It it when you come back, it'll come with you. You know, whether it's the losses you incur or the other things that you do in Vegas, do not believe the hype, right? What happens in Syria doesn't stay in Syria. 
It, it's spilling over Syria's borders. It's taking place in Lebanon. It's taking place in Jordan. It is taking place in the Gulf states. It is taking place between Iran and, 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 and the regional adversaries. It is becoming, I fear, exactly as David Brooks is describing it. Now, I have hope that the people of the Middle East will choose something that is not so identity-oriented, right? See, here's the thing. Before there was a Syrian civil war, the Syrians identified as Syrians. If they have that option again, they will choose that option of identifying as Syrians before they choose to identify as either Sunni or Shiite. Do I agree with Brooks? Yes, I agree that's what's happening right now. Do I agree with him that's what's going to happen in the future? No, I'm not as pessimistic about the future. I think the future will return to normalcy because human beings, all of us, crave normalcy. And I think that the state and the sort of dignity of human beings will prevail in the end, where we will have no longer Sunnism and Shiism, and I'm talking here about 50, 100 years maybe, right, dominating the region where we have identity of a different kind dominating the region. You know, we did that in America, right? You know, we, before John F. Kennedy, we would never even vote for a Catholic president. We always used our identity as this thing that basically divided us, right? We had slavery. We had freaking slavery on the basis of identity, right? We got over those things. And the reason we got over those things is because human beings prefer a common identity instead of an identity that, that divides them. We're working on it. The Middle East is working on it. There's a lot of work to be done. It might be 50 years before that happens. But I disagree with, with David Brooks in the long term. Thank you for that question. Um, okay, so how... Say your name. Amira. Amira. Amira, go on. Um, first, salam alaikum. Um, and also, uh, how, can we find, how can we find um, a medium between satisfying the people who want us to police the world and just maintaining a harmonious balance at home? Yeah, that's a great question. How do we look out for ourselves while looking out for the world, right? Okay, excellent. Excellent question, right? There are two ways to look out for, for ourselves while looking out for the world, right? I'm going to spare you, like, the lecture. And I'm going to tell you this. Shortly, briefly. We can't have a world in which we're looking out for ourselves without looking out for the world. Here's why. If you look at the Middle East, do you know what happens to oil prices when there's crisis in the Middle East? What, what happens? They go down. Who's crazy enough to have them go down? Nobody, right? They go up, exactly as most of you are pointing up, right? They go up. Every single penny that gas prices go up at the pump results in an effective tax increase on the American people of billions of dollars. Amira, to answer your question, it's a false distinction that we make between prosperity abroad while being abroad and prosperity at home or while being at home. Here's the thing. When we thought we can check out of the world, when we thought we can ignore the world, when we thought, hey, you know what? This is not our problem. We should not police the world. We should not police the world. The picture on the left that I'm about to show you, this is what we got. This is what we got. Because we were tuned out from what's happening in Afghanistan, a failed state. We were tuned out from all Al-Qaeda was doing, right? So while being here depends on while being abroad, not just because of terrorism or global warming or whatever, right, or gas prices, but because it has to be a harmonious world in order for the world leader, the United States of America, to be well. Do you understand what I'm saying, right? We can't, be, we can't be leaders of the world without it being a prosperous 
democratizing, well-off world. We can't, right? We can't. It's not a good position to be in. Next question. Hi. Uh, my hey. name is James. James. Uh, kind of building on the balancing that she was talking about, you had mentioned that you thought it was giving mixed messages that we only started supporting the democracy in Syria. Yeah. I'm sorry, in Egypt. In Egypt. After it was already in place? Yeah. Considering the criticism that the U.S. has gotten for kind of forcing democracy on countries that didn't want it, yeah. how can we... Like in Iraq, for example, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How do we find a, a decent balance where we are helping better the world without forcing our Western customs on other countries? Yeah, that's a damn good question, Jim. That's a damn good question, right? How, how do we sort of welcome, nurture, enable democracy elsewhere without imposing too much of ourselves, if I'm understanding it correctly, right, on these people that really don't want to be like, you know, liberal Jeffersonian Democrats, right? And the answer is a pretty straightforward one. The answer is we should insist that democracy should be the goal as a precept of our foreign policy, as, as a fundamental precept of our foreign policy, right? But we should not, under any condition, tell anybody in the world that this is the way to do democracy, right? Don't get me wrong, though. Sometimes, see, here's the thing. Saddam Hussein, do you all, do you all know Saddam Hussein? He died, like, in 2000, well, he was hanged. In 2006 or something like that, right? He was hanged by, by the Iraqis, by the way, just like Ceausescu. Anyway, uh, long story short, Saddam Hussein used to call himself an archetypal Democrat. He, he used to think of himself as a Democrat. He used to fancy himself as a Democrat. When you looked at Iraq, it wasn't a democracy, right? And just because people voted for the blue Saddam Hussein instead of the red Saddam Hussein does not make Iraq a democracy, right? So I guess what I'm saying, James, is that we should have democracy being the end of our foreign policy, right? We should have it being a fundamental precept of our foreign policy, but we should not dictate to folks around the world exactly what democracy looks like. However, when people like Saddam Hussein say they're Democrats, we should call them out on it, right? To answer your question very clearly, even more clearly, I would say that we should insist on democracy and assist people at arriving at their own meaning of what that means. What that looks like in practice, we can talk about for hours. All right, I have a question in the back and then two up front. Sure. Yep. And I'll say, say your name too. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum salam, brother. My What's your name? Ibrahim. Or what is Ibrahim. 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 Same difference. Yeah. Uh, I want to go back to the point where you were talking about the interest of our government. Yeah. Now, when the Iraq war first happened, they were saying Saddam had weapons, uh, weapons of destruction. mass destruction. That's right. Yet that they still haven't apologized for being wrong. Now, by constitution, we are not allowed to go on foreign soil unless they attack us first. Uh -huh. now, the only attack we had in recent history is 9-11, and it wasn't by a government. It was by extremists. That's right. So that goes back to the point, why are we wasting so much money going to these other countries while we're still in recession? That's a damn good question. And on top yeah. of that, we're giving Israel $7 million a day. Now, if we're in a recession, $7 million a day times 365 days is a lot of money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, I think you can save a lot of people's lives with that money domestically. So that's my question. That's a great question, Ibrahim, right? So there's two parts to Ibrahim's question, right? The first part is... Why, what gives us the right to go abroad if we are not directly threatened, right? And the second question is, why do we focus so much on things like foreign aid? And shake your head, yes, if it's that, that's correct so far, right? 
Why do we waste so much of our resources on foreign aid when we need domestic, a domestic focus, right? The first question is a pretty clear one. I don't think we should attack anybody unless we're attacked. And you're absolutely right. 9-11 was committed by a non-state actor, right? But that non-state actor, Ibrahim, was based in Afghanistan. And the Taliban, the sovereign of Afghanistan, was harboring the Taliban. Lest we forget the reason that we went to Afghanistan is because the Taliban was harboring Al-Qaeda, right? Should we have gone in Iraq? No. I was one of the first ones to oppose the Iraq war in 2003, right? Should we go into Syria? I don't know. I really don't know, right? I mean, if you look at those pictures of those kids gassed and they're dead and you don't know why they died, right? I, I don't know. Should we, should we do something? Sure. Right? What does it mean to do something? I'm not really sure. Really, I, I don't know. I do know that we have to do something. But we have to talk about the implications of each action, right? If we bomb Syria, like the Obama administration wants to do a few days ago, the problem with that, aside from the fact that the international community doesn't support us, that sounds kind of familiar. Weapons of destruction, the international community doesn't support us, we bomb anyway, sounds like Iraq again, right? We shouldn't do that, right? We shouldn't do that. But, but the, to the question of what should be done, right? That's a messy solution. I'm not really sure that anything can be done without consequences. If you kill the Syrian regime, if you destroy Bashar al-Assad, if you destroy the Syrian government, it's going to be chaos and anarchy. If you have chaos and anarchy, right, I'm not so sure that that's good for the United States of America any more than like a bullet in the head is good for this professor, right? It's not a good idea. It's not a good idea to have chaos in any country, right? As to the matter of foreign aid, foreign aid to Israel, for example, I think that every country has the right to determine to whom foreign aid should go. I think Ibrahim is right. We have a domestic crisis. Why are we giving our money to foreign actors, whoever they may be, right? You can pick on Israel, but we give Jordan money too. We give Egypt. Next, next to Israel, Egypt gets, gets a large chunk of a foreign aid, right? Should this country give foreign aid? If it buys us stability, then yes, we should, right? I don't care where that's at. If it makes sure that oil prices are low, sure, we should subsidize that. It's a form of subsidy, right? It's a form of buying the peace. The reason that we give Israel and Egypt aid is because in 1978, they signed a peace treaty together, the Camp David Accords, that basically said, we're going to have peace, and the United States is going to buy the peace. Was that a wise idea? Yeah, it is. Sometimes it's better to buy the peace than to pay for war. Right? Sometimes it's better to win the peace, to literally buy the peace, than it is to pay for war. Not just in, in, in money, but in blood as well. Right? That's my position on that, Ibrahim, is that, is that we have to focus on here and abroad. You can't be safe here without making sure that it's safe abroad, or relatively safe abroad. Hi, I'm Elaine Hope. I'm an international... What's your first name? Elaine. Elaine. Elaine, please. Uh, I'm an international relations major, mm -hmm. and my question... You guys really have an international major here? International relations major? Well, I... That is awesome. <laughs> yeah. I love that. Anyway, um, go on, please. My question to you is, it's explicitly clear that... Uh, affairs domestic and affairs abroad yeah. are ex like linked. But what I've seen around me, especially since I like to observe what everybody feels and how they are, that there's so much divide in this country, and it's like there's so much cynicism, especially amongst the like the youth, like my age, mm -hmm. like I'm 19 years old, yeah. and everybody who I talk to about this, I'm just like, oh, what are your feelings? What are your thoughts? Right? And they've given up entirely. They they have just this huge defeatist attitude about yeah. it. Yeah. And it, that goes it goes even bigger, like and you can see that nobody likes Obama or like my parents are 
huge Republicans, and it's not like just because they're Republicans. It's liberals and like it's liberals and it's Republicans. Everybody. They just have this huge divide. They yeah. want to blame each other. Yeah. They don't want to do any get anything actually done. Yeah. So what is it that you suggest that we do to show like to give the example to the rest of the world? to not be that defeatist, not be cynicism, and actually come together? That's a damn good question, Elaine. You know, they always say you should lead by example, right? And how, how, how can we lead when we're so divided, right? We're like, we're like, we're not killing each other here, but we're so divided, we're so polarized, right? And, and, and the question that Elaine asks is a very fine one, right? How do, does the United States lead if we ourselves are so divided? To which Elaine is saying, well, how do we actually see our eyes? There's so much cynicism in the country. Let me give you some, some facts, right? This generation, your generation is more cynical about government than your parents' generation. That's a fact. And your parents' generation was more cynical about government than their parents' generation. We have this like sort of you know, race to the bottom in terms of trust in government. The question that should be asked is, how do we restore good governance, right? How do we restore, how do we restore a united front in this country? How do we lead by example? How do we show that you can have a united democracy? To which I answer two things. Division is not a bad thing, right? But polarization and division to such an extent that we're going to have a debt ceiling crisis. You know, we talk about oil prices and stuff like that. If that debt ceiling is hit, right, if our credit takes a downgrade, watch the American stock market going nuts. Watch the economy go nuts again. The Republicans and Democrats can't even agree on sequester and fiscal responsibility, spending, or taxation policy, right? How do we provide some agreement? The answer to that, Elaine, I fear, is not so much by simply agreeing, right? You're right in the sense that we have to have unity, right? But we have to address the issues that make us ununited, right? The American people are not united in foreign intervention, for example, right? More Americans are opposed to Syrian intervention than they are in favor of it, right? They actually agree on that. That's actually a good thing. But it's a horrible thing as to why they agree. They agree because we were horribly burned by Iraq, right? It's probably a bad idea. Here, here's, here's the point. If you want united government, if you want a united people, address the issues that make them disunited, right, or not united. Well, what are the issues? Engaging in blunders like the Iraq war is a bad idea. We should never have an American administration that engages in the Iraq war. That's why the Obama administration was pausing about the Syria war, right? That's a bad idea. It's a bad idea, right? Engaging in like debt ceiling debates where the debt ceiling, the American debt ceiling, now you all might not know what this is, right? But essentially it's basically Congress saying that we could borrow this money and so on and so forth, right? If we reach that debt ceiling, the country cannot be in non-default of its payments on the foreign debts that we have, right? That produces mistrust of American markets that produces mistrust of American fiscal responsibility, and that will drive our markets nuts. Well, how should we deal with that? We should have a solution that addresses spending and taxation, right? And it should be a bipartisan solution. I guess what I'm saying is this. If we want to be united and lead through strength, right, we have to basically address the issues that make us divided. The national debt ceiling is divisive. The national debt clock is ticking and ticking and ticking. We should probably pay attention to that. We should reform things, right, to make it so that we can engage in fiscally sound policies, right? Now, I'm not running for office. That's not right. well, what, what needs to be done? Here's my five-party platform. I'm not. I'm, thank God I'm never running for office either. You'll never see my name on a ballot. But I will say is this. What I will say is that we need to have good politicians that have smart policies. The problem with American democracy is that we, we, we produce garbage oftentimes for politicians. You know what I mean? 
like garbage in, garbage out, as George Carlin once said. How can we fix that? We need to reform our voting system as well. Right? How do we have unity? It's by addressing the issues that make us divided, not by simply creating unity. I think Sorry. we have time for a couple more questions. Please. All right. Um, my name, name is Therese, Therese, and I come from kind of the opposite spectrum. My mom is from Lebanon, yeah. so we're on the Christian side. Yeah. But um, so in Egypt, military leaders in the past were always rose up from the military. So with every coup d'état they have, do you think another one will rise in between by the time they're able to actually pick somebody they want? I, I fear so. I, I fear that in Egypt you basically will have a military leader, right? If I'm understanding your question correctly, it's that when there's a coup d'etat, right, a leader emerges from the ranks of the military, like Sadat, like Mubarak, that basically governs the country, right? I fear that we're gonna, what we're going to have here, right, is basically a single leader, not Mubarak anymore, but somebody that governs like Mubarak, who basically heads over a military and I'm afraid that what's going to happen in Egypt is the institutionalization or reinstitutionalization of military government. We cannot do anything about that until we put foreign aid on the table. I'm not saying we should cut off our foreign aid to Egypt. Don't get me wrong. What I'm saying is we should have that be a part and parcel of Egypt negotiating on its principles, its precepts, and on moving back towards democracy. The Egyptian people have been had by the Mubarak regime for too long. They need to return to democracy. The question is how? Well, they have to figure out themselves. But we can help them in that effort by putting foreign, policy, foreign aid on the table and saying, if you don't democratize within two years, for example, you will lose the aid. I fear otherwise a person like Mubarak will emerge exactly as you're describing. Um, and I have one more yeah. question. So you were talking about people that supported Obama and didn't support Obama, so how they shouldn't be separated yeah. because we voted for yeah. him. We did vote for him, right? Well, yeah. a lot of people didn't vote for him. A lot of people didn't vote for him, so, <laughs> yeah. mean, But, but the majority did. Have, but you also have the Electoral College that factors in. Sure. And then you're saying that we should take um, what they say seriously. So our founding fathers came up with the issue of life, liberty, pursuit of yeah. happiness, but that only applied to white landowners. And then after time evolved, we went ahead and we added the amendments that abolished slavery, right. but the, at first we counted African Americans as three-fifths of a person. It was a horrible thing, right? And yeah. so how are we supposed to bring those values and interests together if our country was kind of formulated on just white interests? You know, that's itself? a great question, right? So it was white male, by the way, white male interests. It wasn't, yeah, so women in this room couldn't even vote until the 20th century. It's a horrendous fact in America. We, I'm ashamed of it, right? We had slavery until like the mid-19th century. That's something that I'm ashamed of, right? The, the issue, though, is I was ashamed of that, right? I don't think I'm as ashamed of America today as I would have been had I lived during times of slavery, right? The, the, the operative word is that we were that, right? The beauty of this system, and it really is a beautiful system, and I'm not an apologist. You know, I came to this country as an immigrant because I really believe in this country, and, and the, the people, the fine people in this country actually took me in. You folks took me in, right? Allowed me to be a fellow citizen, right? And we have an amazing experiment here that actually allows for self-improvement and more importantly, self-reflection, right? We can reflect on the things that ail us. So women do have the right to vote. Now, as the question of how many exercise the right to vote, men and women, it's a shameful sort of proposition, right? Um, black folks were freed from slavery, right? and free themselves from slavery as a result, not just of constitutional amendment, but it took a friggin' civil war to bring about the end of slavery, right? So we did get better, and I think we could lead by showing the world 
that there is room for improvement. Is it perfect? No. Right? Women get paid like 76 cents to every dollar that a man makes. If you're a woman in this room, you do the same job that I do, you get the same talk that I do, you would get paid 76% of what I'm getting paid. Is that fair? Hell no. No, it's not. Right? Black people still face oppression in America, institutional, institutional racism, right? Uh, there is such a thing as people being opposed to you on the basis of your ethnicity, right? Miss America, Indian descent, right? People are like, this should not be an Arab. And I was like, my mind is going to explode. I'm like, well, first of all, she's not an Arab. She's Indian American. Second of all, why the hell are people so mean that Miss America is now Indian American? Like, why can't we have, you know, a Miss America that represents all of America, right? There is still racism. There is still sexism. There is still homophobia. There is still all kinds of stuff, right? The question that we have to ask ourselves is, how have we gotten better? And we have to lead by showing the world that we did indeed get better and that we have more to work on. We all have more to work on. And that's what we have to sort of put out right, for the world to see. I want to have all of you join me in thanking Dr. Marar. With Thank, you. So much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for, to all of you for attending and excellent questions, and hopefully you can come to future events in the library and global and diversity education. Thanks again, guys. Thank you. Thanks for coming, everybody. Thanks for listening to this Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu library.